G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Now, when we hit a passage like Galatians 4 and 5, the normal way to approach it runs something like this. So, Paul, he challenges these Galatians about the forces in their lives that stand to undermine their Christian faith uh, and he wants them to be alert to those and he wants them to uh, be aware of them. He doesn't want them so much alarmed but he also doesn't want them naive about them. Uh, They are real and they've got to deal with them and so what we then do ordinarily is we trawl through our mental landscape or the, the landscape of our faith and we ask ourselves, well, What are the parallels? What forces undermine my Christian faith or our Christian faith? What unsettles me? What unseats my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, And then we take Paul's advice and we try to be alert and aware, uh, not alarmed, but also not naive um, about things that try to upset our faith in the Lord Jesus. And we're done. And then we pray and we sing and we go home or we, you know, have morning tea together. May I propose that today... Yes, on the one hand, uh, we need to heed these words in terms of our own lives. Uh, We need to take those warnings and we need to be alert and not naive and all the rest. Um, But may I propose that we also, I guess, take this as something of a missionary example in the sense that Paul was writing this with his missionary heart to this church or these churches, I should say, that he planted in these, that he sought the maturity of. Uh, in other words, as we try to reach out to Howrah and beyond in this area, as we strive to preach Christ and, and see uh, unbelie- non-believers take a hold of him by faith, what would it look like for us to play the Paul Uh, for us to adopt his attitude, his heart, um, as as we see it here toward the Galatians. So, not just how do I shore up my faith, do you see, but how do I take a leaf out of Paul's book and shore up the faith of other believers, perhaps young believers, or uh, the young ones who are growing up in our midst, or new converts, how would I go about shoring up their faith uh, in light of the pressures that mount Um, and come at us through life. So let's pray as we come to Galatians 4, but I just wanted to signal to you that that's another lens that I think is always worth viewing Paul's letters through. Let's, Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you are building your church. The Lord Jesus promised that it was and that it remains his work and we look to you for that growth even today. Father, may we have an eye not just on our own lives, but on your mission to seek and to save the lost as we unpack Galatians together. Father, we are not the missionaries that perhaps we'd like to be. Perhaps we feel ill-equipped or undergunned or out of time or out of energy or just plain frazzled, but we do ask that your glory and your kingdom, that your awesomeness, your majesty would ring out, would shine out from us So please use us, your servants, to that end and teach us what you'd have us learn from your word this morning, that Jesus will be better known, better loved, more adored, uh, more fully honoured in and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently heard a story uh, that I wanted to share with you. A story of a lady with two mums. It's not what you're probably thinking, actually. 
Um, Martha Miller, she grew up in a pretty ordinary family. Uh, she's now about 65, so this was years ago. Uh, she had a pretty ordinary suburban childhood, and here's how Mary, so her mum, the woman who raised her, here's how Mary described Martha, uh, young Martha, her daughter. She said, as Martha grew, she did not look nor act like any of our other children. She was a delight to all of us, so pretty, so photogenic, so full of life. Our other children were very serious. Martha excelled in music, was a great cheerleader at school. Okay, this is America now, obviously. Very popular and a blonde. Our other children had dark hair, all needed glasses for nearsightedness. Martha did not need glasses. Uh, Now, here's the thing. By and by, the Miller family got to know the McDonald family, who lived in the same area uh, and just happened to have a daughter who was exactly the same age. I mean exactly, to the day, the same age as Martha. And uh, the the daughter in the McDonald home, her name was Sue, well, she was like this. She was different, dark and tall and skinny in a family that was none of those. In a pretty light-hearted household, she was nervous, studious, serious, whereas the McDonald's were sporty. Sue was bookish. Now, you know where I'm going, don't you? Um, I know you can see it coming. What I find amazing is this. After a few close calls, because these families knew one another, these women only figured out that they were switched at birth at, get this, 43 years of age. 43 years of age. After a few close calls. It's fair to say it was a crisis for these women uh, and for their mothers uh, as well, as you could well imagine. To which family do I belong? Do I belong to the one... And they both had pretty good, you know, they grew up in pretty safe, good environments. But to which family do I belong? Do I belong to the one who raised me, who loved me, or at least they did? Will they keep loving me now that they know of this other daughter who is just so much more naturally like them, who fits in so much better, who is just like the rest of the siblings and bears the family resemblance and, for goodness sake, just happens to is their daughter? Do you see? Or should I change my name and call her mum now and him dad now and them my uncles and aunts? I mean, I fit in better with them. I'm naturally more like them. I just look like them. I mean, it was uncanny, the details. Uh, These uh, um, women spoke in the same way as the rest of their families, even though they hadn't grown up with them. The particular ways that they pronounced words. Where do I belong now? What I'm trying to get at is this very deep sense of of where do I belong that becomes torn or strained or at least confused when there is a real rival, when there is a loving family that has actually raised you and then there's the family that just biologically in your, you know, cells that you belong to, when natural justice seems to say, yes, but I fit there. And granted, the analogy is loose, but as we come to the book of Galatians, my point is this, As we live by faith in Jesus, as we try to persuade others to put their faith in Jesus, we will feel at times and we will see in the lives of our beloved brothers and sisters at times this pull of a rival family, this pull to find their identity somewhere else, to belong somewhere else, more than they belong amongst us, more than they belong with Jesus. And that claim will come in different guises and take different forms, it will pull our hearts in different ways, but I think it's very real. 
And we need to be better prepared to face it and better prepared to fight it, both for our own sake and for the sake of the people around us. So with that kind of, you know, loose sort of analogy to begin with, come with me into Galatians 4, because here we see Paul, he is a pastor now, not just the highfalutin apostle, but he is a pastor with his heart on his sleeve, caring deeply about these men and women and boys and girls in the Galatian churches. And he's appealing to them to stick with Jesus, the Jesus that they know and love, that they've not grown up with as children, but that they know themselves to belong to. Are you going to stick with him, Galatian Christians, in the face of three pretty sticky uh, problems, three challenges, and we'll isolate those three as we go. So let's, let's tick through. We'll try to keep up a pretty quick pace because, of course, it's a long passage and, like last week, another fairly technical one. Brothers and sisters, the first thought is this. A daily passion, is passion the right word? A thirst, a drive, a real push, some oomph, a daily passion to actually reach Christian maturity guards you against being duped, it guards you against being fooled, being befuddled by passionate but poisonous imposters. Uh, So muddled passions. Read along with me in this first section from chapter 4, verse 8, please. And listen along for the heart of Paul, the pastor, um, very much on his sleeve for these people. Formerly, before, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. We do have to get our heads back in Galatians, don't we? It's sort of, it's, it's weird coming each week to, uh, to this little world of its own with its own problems. But how is it? So let's try and get our heads back in this. How is it that observing these, what does it say, verse uh, 10 there, is it? Observing special days and months and seasons and years. How on earth does that undermine their faith in Jesus? Can we try and uh, just plumb that just for a moment? Uh, here you've got to remember, so from last week, what were we talking about? We were talking about being fully known by God and yet truly loved by God. Do you remember those two things together? Not just known but not loved and not just loved but not really known. No, fully known and truly loved by God is what we have in Christ. And the alternatives were, am I fully known and loved by God simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus? Or is it because I keep all these Jewish laws, the Old Testament uh, laws, including circumcision, including food laws, including, now we have verse 10, and this is the context, this is what we come into, observing special days and months and seasons and years. Brothers and sisters, our golden ticket, so to speak, is trusting in Jesus. It is not rule-keeping whether uh, observing festivals and feasts or whatever it is. Our ticket is Jesus. Okay, we're back in the passage now, verse 12. I plead with you, brothers, says Paul, become like me, for I became like you. You've done me no wrong. And he goes on about their personal history. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? 
I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so the, the history, it's, it's almost ridiculous, isn't it? Can you imagine these people? But you get the picture. They loved Paul. They received him so warmly. I mean, it's ridiculous. They would have even torn out their eyes. Such was their affection for Paul. They loved him. They received the gospel um, so generously. And so what happened, or rather who happened, verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I'm with you. Verse 19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Can I just say, um, so as a preacher, week to week, here's a little insight into my study life, into my, you know, what goes on uh, in the office out there. Um, one of the things I try to do, I try to come up with illustrations, with stories that are good, but they're not too good. They're good in that they are gripping, they, they, they get you, you know what I'm talking, but they're not too good. Because if they're too good, well, you've probably all been part of a sermon where the, the, the preacher has drawn out this illustration that has just thumped you, that has just absolutely, it's punched you in the guts or it's got your heart and it's, it's absolutely pulled you, it's left you as a pool of, you know, self on the ground and you can remember the story now, but you cannot remember the content too gripping, too much. So I want to say thanks very much, Paul, for verse 19. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed it there, but verse 19, oh my goodness. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. So he's wanting us to imagine himself, a man, as a woman giving birth to grown man, or in fact, grown uh, churches full of grown people. Thanks very much, Paul. Good luck getting that one out of your minds. And yet, isn't that the heart of their problem? See, why should Paul be back in the delivery suite, back in the birth suite, so to speak, with these Galatian Christians? Surely they can't still be babies. Have they matured so slowly? Have they progressed so little in the intervening time between when he first brought the gospel to them, when they would tear out their very eyes? for him, if they could? Have they matured so little? Have they brought so little passion and drive to the things that they should have focused their attention on, growth toward maturity in Jesus, toward growing in Christ-likeness, toward developing and honing their convictions in the Lord? I fear for you, he says. I plead with you. Have I become your enemy now? I am perplexed about you. I don't know what to say. And I do think it's worth our asking, are we making progress? Are we growing? Have we got a passion and a drive? Now, for what it's worth, I want to say, I think many of us really are. And that is so encouraging to be able to say as a pastor. I don't have anything like Paul's fears for the Galatians uh, for you. But I will ask you, would you please fill in the blank? Would you finish this sentence for me? Here it is. For me, a passion, a drive, a zeal 
for my growing toward Christian maturity has got to mean what in your life? For me, a drive, a passion, a zeal for my growing toward Christian maturity, not just staying where I am at the moment, but growing toward Christian maturity has got to mean what in your life at the moment? What would that look like? What is the next step? What is the obvious step if Paul were kind of, you know, here with his clipboard or sitting down with you with a cup of coffee at your place? What's the next step for you in your Christian life? Perhaps it would just be, perhaps it's simple things, just hopping back on the horse with family devotions. It doesn't have to be rocket science, does it? Perhaps it's, it could be accountability with a friend about porn or about drink or about anger or whatever it is. It could be pulling the Bible off the shelf and putting it beside the bed with a bookmark. Just simple things, isn't it, often that hold us back from making those day-by-day little steps toward maturity in Jesus. It could be devoting one lunchtime a week at work to reading a Bible with that one other Christian in your workplace. I don't know. Could be lots of things. And now with our missionary hat on, it could be as simple as inviting that person who, they don't come to church very often, but we know who they are, inviting them to our Bible study, because I like my Bible study, and maybe they'd like it too, do you see? Taking a little bit of ownership in one another's growth toward Christian maturity. For me, a passion, a drive, a zeal for my growing in Christian maturity has got to mean what? passion. Secondly, misplaced confidence. Uh, And this one, (laughs) I can imagine, would really ring bells for Sue and Martha, Martha Miller and Sue MacDonald, that that whole question of where do I belong and why do I belong um, where I do. Here's the backstory. It seems that these um, these passionate but frankly dodgy people in Galatia, uh, they had got it into their heads, uh, this is a tricky little bit, they had got it into their heads that your claim with God came from being able to trace your descent from Abraham, all right? They seemed to have got that into their heads. Your claim with God and on his blessings and all of that seems to have, uh, they seem to have got it into their heads that that comes from being able to trace your descent from Abraham. And if you can do that, then you're in already, if you're a Jew. But if you're not a Jew, and if you can't claim your descent uh, from Abraham, well, then you've got to at least live a Jewish way, that's how you get in. And Paul's basically, basic reply to these Galatians is, no, brothers and sisters, you are Abraham's children. You are Abraham's children, dear Galatians, but it isn't because of your family tree. Um, so let's just motor through this. It isn't because of your family tree, it is because you trust in Jesus. That is the family trait in Abraham's family. So read with me from verse 21 and he tells this little story, verse 21 of chapter 4. Tell me, he says, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, that was Hagar in the story before, and the other by the free woman, that was Sarah, his actual wife. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. Um, uh, Actually, let me just pause there. So, I'm not going to recap all of Genesis 21, okay? Too complicated. Uh, But you remember two sons, one born to Hagar, And if you know the story there, it's actually um, 
uh, Hagar was, was a maidservant and you, we kind of wonder just how much propriety was involved on, on um, Abraham kind of being pushed on her, but that's a story for another time. Uh, and then on the other hand, the Sarah, and God had always said, God had always maintained, my promises will be through Sarah, through the, um, uh, through the son born of a promise. Uh, so let's, let's keep reading. Have a little faith, Abraham. Verse 24, these things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Do you, can you see what's, what's kind of weird here? with this passage? I know it's kind of a a dense little story uh, and I'm asking you to draw on Genesis 21 and the story's going on there and there's Hagar and Ishmael, uh, born of a slave, not really the children of the promise and there's that extra complication about what was even going on in that reading before at the end. I know that. So you've got that part of the family and then you've got Sarah and Isaac, uh, born according to the promise, have a little faith, Abraham, I'm going to bless you anyway. But can you see what's weird here? See, what's weird is that Paul knows perfectly well that all of his fellow Jews were not, were not descendants actually of Hagar at all. In terms of ancestry, the dodgy guys who were trying to push the the Old Testament law straight onto these Christians, they were not, according to descent, Abraham, uh, sorry, they were not Hagar's kids at all. But what he's saying is, no, no, I'm just taking these things figuratively. Alright, I'm just taking this as an illustration. Regardless of who their parents are, anyone who is clinging onto the law, the law given at Mount Sinai, instead of clinging onto the promises of God in Jesus, anyone who is clinging onto the law is a slave. And that happens to correspond to all of the people, largely, in Jerusalem at the present time, Paul is saying in his day. Anyone who clings rather to the promises of God by faith, well, they've got a claim. Because that's what the family of Abraham was always about. He caps it off with this little quote from Isaiah, and we nearly threw the dense bit. He caps it off with this little quote from Isaiah uh, to the effect that, um, you Christian Galatians, you Christian Galatians who are not Jews, who have the wrong ancestors, and yet you believe in Jesus, you are the family that God had always planned. You are the hope that Abraham had always looked for from God. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labour pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Picturing these children by faith as the great hope of the Old Testament people of God. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, verse 28, are children of promise. At that time, the son born of the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, whew, what do we do with all that? Let me tell you what I do with all that. I think the nearest parallel in our lives, because that, that conundrum seems so foreign to us, 
I think the nearest parallel in our lives is this. There are times in just normal Christian life, as I go along and I bet as you do too, when we meet people who they just reckon we're not real Christians. And they reckon they are. They reckon they're the real children of God and they reckon I'm not. Uh, Maybe they reckon I'm in but just kind of a crummy Christian or maybe they reckon I'm not in at all um, but they're the only ones in. And maybe it's because I believe supposedly some outdated stuff or maybe it's because I believe some far too modern progressive stuff. Maybe it's because they've had spiritual experiences that I haven't had uh, or maybe it's because, you know, you can, you've probably encountered all of those things. But I'll tell you how I feel when I encounter these people. I feel pretty inferior. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like my claim on the family of God is pretty tenuous suddenly. Because what have I got? Well, all I've got are the eternal promises of God, the God of the universe, fulfilled in the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. But they've got this experience. Can you see the contrast? And the way that it gets under our skin? Or they seem so much better or so much trendier or whatever. And I've got to remember, no, but I have the eternal promises of the God of the universe (laughs) fulfilled in the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus. What I have is not a small thing. What you have, brothers and sisters, is not a small thing. And I think Paul is teaching us to say, when that sense of inferiority comes, when that claim comes, he's teaching us to say, boulder dash. Have you got the Spirit of God? Then you're in. Have you got faith in Jesus? Then you're in. Do you freely and joyfully live for Him in your Christian life? Well, if they pick on you, don't worry about it. And if they shut the door on you, let them. If they make you feel inferior, then remember that your place is absolutely secure in the Lord Jesus, known and loved by our Heavenly Father. A muddled confidence indeed. The final thought is simply that everything that you hope for, so thirdly now, murky hopes, the final thought is simply that everything you hope for in your life, everything that you long for, everything that you live for, the things that are a joy in your heart, they are tied to Jesus. So whatever murks those up, whatever muddies your view of Jesus, it can sap your Christian life of hope and joy and you're left with nothing to long for, nothing to live for. Have a look with me, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom, says Paul, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to you that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who rely on, uh, sorry, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace, but by faith, by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
The one who is throwing you into, con- into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Let me just focus on verse 5. Uh, verse 5 in that wonderful passage. Have you got it there? By faith, says Paul, we eagerly await. We eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. And I want to say, as a preacher, one of the things I find hardest in actual preaching, so not the rest of the pastoral role, but just in the preaching, is how do I set before us? So verse 5, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. How do we week by week look on the sheer brightness of what God has in store for us, for our future. How do I do justice from the front here to the Christian hope, to eagerly awaiting as the stamp of our Christian lives in the world, that we might be yearning for, longing for, loving? How can I stir us up in our imagination for a day that is so wonderful, it will take our breath away? So excellent that our lives, even the best of our lives now, are this eagerly awaiting. I think you've got to be able to say this much, can't you? When you stop hearing me straining to do it from the pulpit, then you better pipe up. And when in your relationships you, you find yourself no longer able to hear that hope among your Christian friends, then pipe up with one another. Put it back on the agenda in your conversation. When we hold out the gospel to the people around us, let us let the hope of heaven be what um, be always on our lips. Because of this, you can be sure, a gospel that has drifted from Jesus, has drifted from Jesus, will have a hope that is murky at best. Murky at best. But a Christian hope, uh, that means we'll be marked by this eagerness uh, that we await through the Spirit, uh, the, the hope of righteousness. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. To, to conclude, can I leave you with this? Paul has been pushing these Galatians to rely on, to trust in, to depend on these words, these promises, this history that they can remember, these facts they can rely on. They belong to Jesus and they're loved by Jesus. Here's their hope, here's their joy. So back with Martha Miller for a moment. As you can imagine, things got pretty messed up for her and for her mum and for her the, the, the sister, the other sister. For a while, she didn't know where she belonged and the mothers, in their grief and in their unrest, they sent some pretty confused and mixed messages. But in terms of words, in terms of things that they could rely on, in terms of facts and in terms of history... I think this one sentence from the dad in the Miller household got it exactly right and I wonder if we need to depend on the very same. Here she is, Martha thinking on her dad and his words. My dad, as in Mr Miller, he would call me and tell me, you know, I don't care what anyone says, you're still our kid and I'm glad we had you. Is that your knowledge of our Father in heaven? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know ourselves, your children. 
because of clear promises from you, because of the reality of Jesus coming into the world, because of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, confirming all that to us, and that we know a truly beautiful hope in Christ, a hope that fuels not just our mission, but fuels just love and joy in our hearts day by day. Father, please don't allow us to slump around in our Christian lives, but instead, would you grow us, please? Grow us into mature convictions, into mature confidence, into mature character. Grow the hope of Christ's return and righteousness in us, please, that we'd look for that and that we'd long for that. Please, Lord, may that swell in us out of of knowing and prizing you more truly and deeply. And Father, may that, may that passionate love for Jesus prove thoroughly infectious as others come to prize him too. We ask it, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.